What are you afraid of? Everyone is afraid of something. What's that thing for you? The thing that makes your knees weak or that makes the hair at the back of your neck stand on end. The thing that makes you want to slide out your phone and call someone for reassurance when you're nervous. I don't have a thing. I would have no idea what you're talking about. So much so that I was recently messaging with my friends. We were labelling our social group, deciding which person was each character from the TV show Dairy Girls. I don't know if you've seen it. Don't worry yourselves too much about the whole sectarian conflict carry on. There's really only one thing you need to know. We're the goodies. It's a show about a group of girls in 1990s Northern Ireland. Anyway, I got Michelle. I was out the back cashing up. I sneaked in, yanked it off the wall and away I went. I was like a thief in the night. <laughs> you were like a thief in the night? You actually were a thief in the night? And you stole from Vanilla of all people. Vanilla! I once saw her punch a Rottweiler, Michelle. If she finds out about this, she'll kill you. Kill us? You're an accessory after the fact now, my friend. God, can I ask why he stole the notice port? So we get first dibs in all the jobs. Wouldn't it have been easier to just remove the notices? They're only blue tacked on. Fuck off, Techweed. Pre-rough and tumble, big mouth, too confident without much backing it up, really. That's how my mates that I studied Hispanic studies with at uni sorted me. How wrong they were. Oh, my legs are shaking. Wow, I didn't have such a visceral reaction to heights. Heights. I climbed about 250 steps and had such shaky legs. I seemed like one of those newborn animals trying to walk for the first time. If you want to find out how such a undoubtedly cool girl like me lost her way climbing up an ancient rock that both grandmas and kids trundle up quite easily stay tuned you're listening to wherever island i'm andrea lucia peters and today we're in medellin colombia good morning everyone it is 7 30 a.m I'm at El Dorado International Airport in Bogota on my way to Medellin. My expectations of Medellin ahead of going are that it's very, very hot, that it's pretty and green and modern, mainly because it's the only city in Colombia to have a metro or an underground train. So that has really coloured my view. I just think it's going to be like this really modern, pretty city. I also want to go to Guatape, Guatupe, which is like this Fortnite looking rock. (laughs) How I laughed. Fortnite, by the way, for all you boomers out there, is a popular video game. The CGI landscapes are made up with these bright, extremely saturated colours. And Guatape, from the photos I'd seen, looked like it belonged in that cartoonishly well-groomed universe. So I, of course, went. Guatape is a town of green islands, blue lagoons, with a famously large rock formation about a two-hour bus ride from Medellin city centre. So the bus driver unloads me at a service station. There are people all about flipping burgers on griddles next to petrol pumps. And one of them points me to where I need to go. And I set off. So I'm in Guatape, which is the small town that hosts a bunch of natural attractions. If I sound a bit out of breath, it's because I am. To get to the major attraction here, which is... La Piedra, or just in English, the rock. You have to climb up these really steep steps. You know, I actually don't think you have to. 
um, because no one else is on the steps. Maybe they will take the tuk-tuks in. But I'm walking up the steps. They're a really steep incline, obviously, because this is like a mini rock on top of a larger island formation. I should probably describe what this area is like. Guatepe and Peñol are small towns in Colombia's Antioquia department, which is pretty central and landlocked, apart from one small northeasterly point, which is why looking out over at the landscape is pretty confusing. The islands I'm looking out at, you'd expect to see them near the shores of Thailand or Cambodia, not in the centre of Colombia. And there's just these series of islands. I wonder if we're, we can't be at the coastline. We're two hours from Medellin. Where does all this water come from? Is it a lake? How are all these islands formed? My confusion makes a lot of sense. I'm not near the sea. There's no natural reason why this landscape should exist. So why does it? Well, the islands and lagoons are artificial and they've not existed for that long. In the 1970s, the inhabitants of the original town of El Peñol and Guatepe were paid off by the local government to relocate. And with the help of Interconexión Eléctrica SA, a massive hydroelectric dam was constructed. The Guatepe River running through the region was plugged up and became the Puchina Dam. So, water levels rose throughout all of the river's tributaries and lakes, creating the illusion that there are a series of islands inland. Now, the majority of the old city exists underwater. One small emerging cross rises out of the water as a reminder of where the old church once stood. But above it all, shoots out the big rock and the main attraction I'm here to see. The big rock goes by many names. Both the town of El Peñol and Guatepe claim the rock as their own, which means some refer to it as the Stone of El Peñol and others call it El Peñón de Guatepe. It's also sometimes just referred to as La Piedra, aka The Rock. Admit it, Lillian, you get wet. With perspiration, standing this close to the rock. I wonder if Dwayne Johnson copyrighted The Rock. Who knows? This piedra is an outcrop of granitic rock that sticks out of the earth, 285 metres high. For context, the Eiffel Tower is only about 30 metres taller. The Eiffel Tower, at least, has an elevator. The steps I'm walking up appear as if they're built into the side of the rock. If you look from afar, it looks like someone has just glued up a bunch of steps. The hills you can see from afar are just tremendous. And it's probably time I admit something, which is that I'm actually very afraid of heights. I'm really not a fan, especially on walkways. This is probably a metre wide, so I'm able to see the edge really clearly and it's giving me vertigo <laughs> but we continue what else is there to be done this recording is so funny because i'm both scared and extremely out of breath and it's like the two are competing 
what's coming through more, the fear or my utter lack of fitness. There's also no down the way I'm going up. So it's great. The further you go up, the more you're able to see the views, which I think are going to be pretty tremendous when we reach the top. The main thing here is just keep going. And the places where I actually can't see over the edge of the wall, I don't feel like I'm just on an unusual walk and not one that appears to be glued to the side of a massive mountain. Just see a sign that says, if you feel lightheaded or dizzy, call for help. I'm going to end the recording here and meet you when I'm back at the top. She never reached the top. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I reached the top of the platform and there's just 360 views of everything not super great place to take photos because there are wires across the fence to make sure you don't uh, jump to your death or get pushed but it's amazing to see even if not to take a photograph it's pretty sick Walking back really gives you an appreciation of how much of a challenge it must have been to construct these stairs on literally, I've said this so many times now, that appear as if they've been glued on and just drilled into the side of a jutting rock. I also thought that I was so scared my legs were shaking, but I think it was just the fact of walking up all the stairs and walking down that my calves have really been pushed to their limits. Yeah, sure. Before I left, I took one last stab at trying to describe the landscape of Guatape. I just wanted to get it right because its beauty was extremely overwhelming and I had just climbed up and down the Eiffel Tower-sized rock. So this is that description. It's such a contrast between the green of the lakes and then the bright red sand and then out of it comes these jutting, really vertical green trees that shoot upwards. And it's just so, as the Spanish would say, impresionante. It creates such an impression on you when you get to overlook the whole of the landscape. And in the background is a bunch of lovely traditional Colombian music playing. Because if there's one thing they love, it's just music 24-7. Colombians are many things, but quiet is not one. So here's a funny thing. This episode is about Medellin, and my first really quite glowing descriptions of the place are actually about a small town about two hours away. So what gives? Basically, before I went to Guatapé, I actually spent an afternoon in Medellin, the day I flew out. And I really, really didn't enjoy myself. The afternoon started out strong. I rode the metro. On the surface, this seems pretty innocuous. 
But I've been living in a city without a train or tube network for the past few months. So this was actually a real treat. I'm in the Medellin metro. What a delight. Yeah, London's predicted to have air conditioning in our tubes in, I think it was last reported at 2050. Medellin Metro has it already. I just travelled in the tube in rush hour. It was jam-packed and horrific, but that's exactly how it is in London at rush hour. I think that's how it is worldwide. At least we don't have those Japanese men that push us in with sticks. (laughs) My only qualm with the Medellin Metro is that on the escalators there's clear signs that you stand on the right and you walk up on the left and people have just ignored it and everyone's standing still on the escalators which would literally never work in London you are dragged to the right if you're just standing there tourists are shouted at it's a point of sport but here in Medellin everyone just stands maybe it's the heat we're all too fatigued to do anything but yeah Medellin Metro aircon several lines good vibes (laughs) I vote 9 out of 10 It's a really, really good metro. I was so excited about it that I chatted to my hostel receptionist about how embarrassing it was for Colombia's second city, Medellin, to have a metro, while the capital, Bogotá, continues to only have buses. She basically summarised that Bogotá's politicians are all way too corrupt to actually save and build an underground tube network. And quite frankly, I think most Bogotanos would probably agree with her. Anyway, so I get off the metro at a stop called Parque Berio. This was a bad idea, but I'll get back to that later. I stop off in apparently the city centre where all the tourist sites are. There was nothing here. Well, actually, seemingly everything was here. Just nothing I was interested in. There were so many merchants selling fakes. Fake Nike hats, fake Calvin Klein underwear, fake Gucci belts. You name it, they faked it. I came to Medellin with only a small backpack, so couldn't have fit any shopping in, even if I'd wanted to. And I definitely didn't want to. It's not why I came here. But looking around, I couldn't really see why I had. It was loud and it was really, really hot. Medellin's average temperature is 27 degrees Celsius, but with the full midday sun blaring, it feels much hotter. And I'm a wet blanket from London who gets heat stroke very easily. So I'm just wandering around covered in sweat looking for anything to grab my attention. It didn't need to be anything major, some kind of tourist site or maybe just a cafe where I could have gotten a nice glass of ice water. In the end, I didn't find any of this. I found a department store. I'm currently in a high street store, ducking from the heat and the noise. It's so noisy. I'm not sure how famed Medellin is to be in the city itself. Perhaps there was a reason why all of the people in my hostel were staying in my hostel 24-7, hanging out in the hammocks rather than coming into town. Let's see what the town has to offer, though. A massive palace is what it had to offer. Yeah, five minutes after this, I stumbled across this massive castle-like building known officially as the Palace of Culture Rafael Uribe Uribe. Of course, at the time, I had no idea what its full official name was. I was just so glad to find something of interest that could get me out of the blistering heat. 
I'm walking about the Palace of Culture, perhaps the most notable building in Medellin, and they just let you have free reign of it. I've just stumbled upon a spiral staircase, and I'm walking up it. <laughs> you can hear a little bit the outside hubbub, but inside, with the stone walls and the high ceilings, you get to escape the heat and most of the noise. I love buildings where they just let you explore. I feel a little bit like someone's going to come tell me off because I'm going to stumble upon secret materials, but here we are. Does anyone else do this? It's like the seven-year-old in me thinks I'm going to discover the Da Vinci Code whenever I walk about these old ancient buildings unsupervised. Anyway, I just walked around being a total nerd about the building's gothic architecture. I'm descending a different way from the way I ascended and it's these narrow, teeny tiny staircases that just makes me think of the olden days where it's everything just seems higgledy-piggledy. We've got massive spiral staircases on one side and then these teeny tiny narrow staircases on the other. Perhaps these were the servants' staircases. This palace was my safe haven, but I'm currently hiding out between disused bookshelves because they're playing this horrifically loud Halloween song for the kids and I can't escape. I can't escape the noise. My respite is over. Time to get back to reality. Can you hear it? It's creeping up, the background music. We get it, it's Halloween. <laughs> please, please, I'm begging you. It's too hot. It's too hot to be this noisy. It's sensory overload. Given that I couldn't hide out in the palace forever, I set off to explore Medellin again. Quickly, the fatigue started to set in. My footsteps got heavier and heavier, slower and slower. And then I wandered down a few streets I probably shouldn't have. Do you remember how I said I shouldn't have gotten off at Parque Berio? Well, I'd walked, kept walking and wound up in San Antonio. Later, when I told my friends where I'd been, they all asked the same question what the hell were you doing there so I went for a wander and I had no idea where I was going I was like I'll just walk around a bit then the um, streets got a bit less well made and I was like okay chill um, there was zero tourists anywhere near me I actually can't see that many tourists in general but where I was going there were none and so I was like okay I'll turn back on myself but not 100% back I'll do like a long loop so I turned to my right and I go up this road and it absolutely reeks. And I have to keep going because it's the way back. And it it was the amalgamation of the heat, the noise, and then you add in this water runoff running down the side of the pavement because these were all meat shops I was walking past. And I think this was the runoff of the meat streaming down the road imagine the smell in this 25 degree heat it was just so pungent i'm a vegetarian anyway but i think anyone would find this revolting and i don't like to talk negatively about somewhere but that was a horrific 30 second experience i'm speaking as if i've been to the war that was not a fun experience and then i did a loop back and in it i was just like 
there's so much noise. I recorded a clip of the cityscape and it was just more and more and more and more until finally I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So now I've sat down in one of the bougiest coffee shops I could find overlooking the plaza and my beloved cultural palace. I'm going to have an iced latte and then I think I'm going to go home <laughs> to the hostel, get on the metro, bump off back to the hostel and try again another day. So look, I clearly didn't like Medellin. I did not rate it as a city. I did what a lot of travellers can do, which is to show up in a place as a tourist and therefore expect everything you see to be touristic. There's this really funny sketch by Brian Jordan Alvarez that sums up this attitude in the aptly named video. Everything is beautiful when you're travelling. Look at this, such a Spanish house. It's like if this was just like where we lived, it wouldn't be as magical, but it's like so... Yeah, Just because yeah. everything in Spain, it's like, When you travel, wow. everything is just 10 times better. Look at this house. Oh, this is where oh, we're staying. Oh, this is our Airbnb, yeah. 5-7. Five, 5-7, seven. Five, seven, five, seven. Oh, this is my house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're home. So that's not Spain. This is California. This is Southern California. Yeah. It's the sand. It's this. It's. It not- was the shingles on yeah. the houses on the roofs. Yeah. This is my house. This is my house. Okay. We're How still we in LA. I mean, his street is probably quite beautiful, but I think his point is we don't go about over romanticizing everything in our day to day lives in a way that many of us do when we travel. I'm not really sure why it is that we do this. I think it could have something to do with the investment of a holiday, right? You've booked time off work, you've invested in flights and accommodation, etc., etc. So you better bloody enjoy yourself. You need to convince yourself it was all worth it, especially when everyone else on Instagram always has the best time abroad, right? Everything you see on social media is fake. Everything. This is Cody Co. He was dissecting how people flex their travels. Chances are, if someone's posting this type of shit, they come from money or they're not having nearly as much fun as you think they do. This is coming from someone who traveled, who backpacked for eight months. It was fun, sure. But I made one real friend that whole year almost. And by the end, I was just like, I miss, I want to come home. There's only so much blue ass water you can, you can look at. Eventually you're like, I've seen every shade of blue. I definitely haven't yet. But I mean, at the end of the day, Some places are really not fit for tourists. And I don't often see in travel guides or videos or podcasts anywhere really people saying that some places are not fun or particularly nice. Maybe people don't say it because they don't want to offend, which I, of course, obviously don't want to do either. Places like downtown Medellin are inherently bad places. The locals like noise more than I do. And they're going about their business. I mean, the butchers got to make a living showing off his meat somehow, even if I find it to be a bit smelly. To them, it was a completely normal day. But for me, it was so overwhelming. Like even in my hostel, after having such a bad time in downtown Medellin, I still felt somewhat guilty about complaining. I didn't even really want to think about the stuff I was saying before because it was so hot and so loud and so noisy and I'm so disorientated that I'm sure I made it sound much worse than it was like look it wasn't this picturesque super touristic town but it did have really nice parts did it have also bad parts yes I'm just regretting looking back on them now that I'm back in my hostel showered in clean clothes lying in my air-conditioned room like I'm sure it wasn't that bad it was would I recommend downtown Medellin? No. 
But it's so important to know that the trip didn't end there. There's hope. A few days later, I explored a part of town that completely changed my mind about the city, making it somewhere I would recommend wholeheartedly and I'm looking forward to return to. That's coming up. I don't know. I just want to like spend my time down here this week, just just like immersing myself in the local culture. You know what I'm saying? Is that a Starbucks? Oh man, it's hot out here. Necesito air conditioning. No, you guys. I think it's one more block ahead. No, I've never been to this country before, but trust me, I read a Lonely Planet travel book. The city with the highest murder rate in the world. In Colombia, the murders continue in the cocaine capital of Medellin. 40 deaths have been reported there in the last 24 hours. It's 1988, and Time magazine declares Medellin the most dangerous city in the world. The Abura Valley, where people had fled to, looking for a better life, has become a lawless battleground between drug cartels, communist revolutionaries, right-wing paramilitaries, and the government's ineffectual forces. This is the image of Medellin and Colombia as a whole that you may be familiar with. The infamous drug baron, Pablo Escobar, was raised in Medellin and it was here that he decided to run the largest cocaine syndicate that the world has ever seen. To this day, Escobar is still considered to be the world's greatest and wealthiest criminal. Estimates of his wealth put at about 35 billion, that's billion with a B. The narco-terrorist's success has led to his immortalization in the media as a glorified drug kingpin, most notably in Netflix's Narcos. Many in the West glamorized Pablo, viewing him as a folk legend. He was rich, powerful, and charming. And significantly, he spoke of real grievances the Colombian people faced. A nuestras familias las han atropellado, ha habido represión, allanamientos, saqueos a nuestros hogares. El problema nuestro no es un problema de dinero, es un problema de dignidad. But it was the locals of Medellín who paid for the wealthy amassed with blood. Yeah, I don't like this man for his person. If you know the history, you never know who your problems are going to be here in Colombia. Yes. This is a local tour guide, Stephen. He said, if you know the history, you're never going to wear a Pablo Escobar t-shirt in Colombia. What he's referring to are the countless tourists that can be seen all over the country wearing t-shirts with one picture splashed across their fronts of Pablo Escobar's smiling mugshot. Medellin has changed since its violent heyday. Of course it has. Otherwise, how else would tourists like me be able to wander its streets now? Most cities have free walking tours like the one I'm on now. Yet Medellin's is different. These strolls are a bigger part of the history of the place. Don't focus on cathedrals or castles. Instead, they chronicle the stories of violence that once gripped the city. The most poignant tour takes place in what was formerly the most dangerous zone of Medellin, Comuna 13. To understand how the city has improved, however, we should state how it was so war-torn to begin with. In the 1960s, left-wing armies began to mobilise against the government. They sought to overturn the intense inequality that existed in Colombia. Their mission began somewhat nobly, but they turned to the drug trade, kidnappings and murder to fund their rebellion. By the 1970s, the Colombia drug trade booms and fuels both political guerrillas and for-profit cartels that had emerged. In the 1980s, right-wing paramilitary groups begin murder campaigns 
against oppositional politicians, the guerrillas and locals. Throughout these 40 years and to the present day, 7 million Colombians are displaced. Some flee in search of a better life and some are forcibly ejected to make way for whatever powerful group claimed ownership of their home. But what if you refused? What if you refuse to give up your house and community? Yes, because they know what happened if they come back to your house and you're still in the house. They know what happened. They kill you. This is Stephen again, the local tour guide. The people who were displaced, man, they took bags and families full of clothes and they came to Medellin looking for a new place to build a house and to live in their house. Yes, they were coming to this place, coming to this place, coming to this place until they got committed 13. When they got committed 13, they know what they saw. They saw two mountains ready to be built. So the slums of Medellin exploded. Informal housing sprawled up the valley and across the Andes Mountains in which the city sits. Did they make their houses themselves? Like, did they buy the bricks and make their own houses? Yes, yes. So bricks are cheap. Yes, this is like absolutely cheap. So uh, they normally, when you come here, you take the place, you take, you do the square when you want the house. The people need to stay there. Yes, because if you're building the house and you and you it's like in the metal house. Yes, and you go and you live. Someone's gonna take here. It's gonna come here. They build your house and you lose. Yes. So most of the people build those houses in approximately less than five days, less than four days. Yes. Only the walls. Yes. Only the walls. You put the address. Yes. You put your name and it's your house. This was what people made. Yeah. This is by hand. Displaced people fled, building their own houses with their bare hands and the few materials they could find and afford. All of this within five days so their construction would not be stolen or occupied and so they could finally have a home. They moved to Medellin looking for a better life. But for those that arrived in the 60s and 70s, that wasn't to be. The violent factions used Medellin as a battleground. Camino 13, where I was walking through, was the worst neighbourhood for this. In the early 90s, the city had a murder rate of 380 per 100,000 people. For context, in the last year, at the height of a military dictatorship and amidst serious civil uprising in Venezuela, Caracas had a murder rate of only 100 per 100,000 people, less than a third, and they're in a virtual civil war. This violence meant more than just numbers to Stephen, who was raised here, and who saw the worst of Medellin's bloody past. In 2009, I was 11 years old. I was going down with my mother, yes, but in that corner, in that corner, I made two gangsters. These two gangsters was the two gangsters who told me that I lost my first line. How was this? They told to my mother, uh, pointed to me with his finger, they told to my mother, hey, your son, your son, and pointed to me, hey, your son, your son can't close anymore in the way going down. When I was 11 years old, I lost my first invisible line and the possibility to continue crossing in the way going down. Invisible lines or invisible borders were created by the street gangs allied with drug cartels or paramilitaries as a way to divide the communas and the city into territories. Enforcing these invisible borders served as a means of control over the inhabitants. Young men were the prime targets in receiving invisible borders. They acted as a means of decreasing potential informants, cutting locals' opportunities outside the neighbourhood and therefore increasing their chances of becoming future gang members. Stephen walked us through the neighbourhood and showed us the invisible borders that he abided by and why he never crossed the lines that boxed him in. Do you know I never did? I never crossed those lines. I never, I never crossed those lines. Never. Do you know why? Because some of my friends, some of my friends, they crossed the lines first on me. And do you know what? 
Some of my friends are not here anymore. They're not here anymore for those lines. Yes, when I lost my first frame for invisible line, was in the moment when I understood that there is no reason, a value reason why I'm going to cross the line. Yes, I need to wait for a couple of days, of years, of months, but everything is going to change. We used to have really, really big hope that everything is going to change in a couple of days, in a couple of, of weeks. I mean, can you even imagine being limited to such a small area? Half a neighbourhood for years. I like going on long walks, walking in the countryside or along city streets at night. I'd have to just put my earphones in, play some music or a podcast and go. But if I were to live in Medellin during this time, I would be limited to the lines arbitrarily given to me by my local gang members, left to pace the outskirts of my border, imprisoned with nothing but hope to hold on to. For Stephen and for many in the communas, their weight paid off. Well, you know the most beautiful thing is you guys, you guys are crossing these three different invisible lines in only one day. And this is so real. This is, I'm not hearing you. I'm not lying to you. Yes, you're crossing these three different invisible lines in only one day. What an amazing thing we're doing right now. So what changed? What freed Medellin and specifically the informal housing areas known as comunas? Operación Orion or Operation Orion. October 2002, an army of government forces entered the guerrilla and gang-occupied Comuna 13. Allying themselves with illegal right-wing paramilitaries, the government entered the neighbourhood and began attacking for power and control of the zone for two days without breaking. This is where people lived, where business owners flipped burgers and children studied. But 48 hours, it became an active war ground. 370 people were arrested. 12 were captured and tortured, 92 disappeared under duress, and 80 civilians were injured. The police killed 17 people, and paramilitaries assassinated 71. In the end, the government forces emerged victorious and took control of the land. And after these military, PA, sorry, paramilitaries, guerrillas, and gangsters, yes, they go out of Community 13. Yes, and we finished with this big problem that we got here. The violence didn't end overnight, but with the government's increased military presence, along with the introduction of various social programs, from cable cars and outdoor escalators, that connected those living on the outskirts of the city to justice buildings in the communas to help resolve conflicts, Medellin consistently became more stable and less violent. And with the signing of the peace accords, with each illegal faction, the city continued to flourish. I feel so proud. Stephen choked up a little at the end of our tour. More than anything, what the residents wanted to leave us with was their happiness and pride. Walking about Comuna 13 now is a sport. The walls are adorned with these bright, colourful murals. You've got purples, pinks, browns, greens. Everywhere you look is so vibrant. And graffiti art has become its own economy there. Hip-hop artists dance for tourists for money. And away from the crowds, they blast their music and they just dance for each other. Small business owners selling empanadas or the bandeja paisa smile as you walk by and they listen into the history that the tour guides talk about, even though the majority of them lived through it. 
in the various playgrounds and adventure courses dotted about the neighborhood, children play totally carefree. In a neighborhood once more dangerous than active war zones, today tourists mill about, taking photos on expensive cameras and iPhones, and crossing invisible lines that once kept locals imprisoned. Belgium is the second biggest city in Colombia, having 2.8 million of people. 2.8 million of people is Belgium city big. Yes, Belgium city, according, listen to this, according with Colombians government, not what you know we say, so you know Colombians government say, we have 46%, 46% less youngsters than 10 years ago. Do you know how big is this? Almost 50% of the gangsters less than 10 years ago. Same three quarters, same three quarters, same, but less gangsters in those three organizations. Medellin is now considered to be safer than several US cities, including Baltimore, Detroit, and New Orleans. A local resident describes the community now as a paradise. Es un paraíso, no porque sea mi barrio, pero es un paraíso. Above all, it's a place where people can be and live safely. This is the heart of Medellin. The people's openness is unmatched. At several points during the tour, Stephen would stop and just greet people. They could be 25 meters away, blocking our path, running past. The locals just seemingly can't help themselves from saying hello, which to me is crazy. I'm from London. We barely make eye contact with people. And here they seemed so eager to greet people and welcome them to their community. For so long, the locals and the city of Medellin existed day to day, consumed by fear and oppressed by violence from every side. But the witch is dead and the villagers spend every day celebrating his demise, appreciating each day with the vigor of those who remember the past all too well. Once there was a wicked witch in the lovely land of Oz And a wickeder, wickeder, wickeder witch there never ever was She filled the folks in Munchkin land with terror and with dread Till one fine day from Kansas a house fell on her head And that's the second episode about and inspired by Medellin in Colombia What a great song You've been listening to Wherever Island, an independent production created by me, Andrea Lucia Peters. If you'd like to support the show, there are a few ways you can do this, and I would profoundly appreciate as we are such a tiny program. Firstly, you could share the podcast with friends and family, go wild, drop the Spotify link in a group chat. It really does help to receive recommendations from people you know and trust, so this is really essential. Secondly, you can leave an iTunes review. This lets people know that you've enjoyed the show. And I promise to read out any good reviews here on the podcast. You can make fun of me, make fun of the show, say anything funny, witty, or interesting, and I will read it out right here. So do that if you want to be immortalized on this program. If you don't want to do any of that, but would like to see behind the scenes photos, videos, or thoughts, head to the social media. This podcast is at Wherever Island on Twitter and Instagram. For this week's episode, I'm going to be uploading some gorgeous pictures of Guatape so you can see the visuals of the magnificent rock. There will also be a bunch of much less gorgeous photos of me posing my way around Community 13, so check it out. There's also a website, whereveryisland.com, where you can check out the show notes for this episode and for every episode. And that, that is a wrap. Tune in next week. As usual, I've not planned out where it is that I will be going, 
who knows wherever I might land. Thank you.